bulletin if you have your bulletin, but if any of you, any of you would like a copy of this, would you raise your hand now, and, and I, Clayton can hand a few out if anybody does. Some of you may have already grabbed one, um, but just in case, it's uh, got extra blanks on it, so you won't get confused if you, uh, if you look up and see. Anybody else? I made several copies, and I saw several out there and didn't want them to go to waste if uh, we didn't have to, so I thought I'd double-check if anybody would like some. If you want, I'll turn my back so I don't see your hands. If nobody wants it, it's okay. It doesn't hurt my, my feelings. So, Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be, and if you have your Bible, you can be turning to Luke chapter 15, and we'll begin there this morning. We're continuing a series that we have sort of, I didn't plan on, but inadvertently entered into through our vacation Bible school and things, uh, talking about parables. And we're going to do that this morning, and I was considering doing it one more Sunday, possibly to kind of make it an, an even month, uh, but to, to consider some of the good parables of Jesus. We had a good day with our vacation Bible school, studying parables and, and a few uh, in detail, and then we talked last week about the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Several of you made uh, good comments, appreciate always the kind comments about the lesson, but, but several of you said you hadn't considered that one before, maybe, or hadn't considered uh, some of the application of that. So I think it's been a beneficial study so far. And as we said last week, there are usually, or there is usually one main point that we take from a parable, but quite often there are some other things that we can glean from it. And so certainly this morning as we're thinking about this lesson, I tried to give you a trick if you've got the outline in front of you, the longer outline. I didn't number the points, so you wouldn't know there are 10, but there are 10, so we've got to get into the lesson this morning. Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son has been called the gospel in miniature. Someone also called it the gospel within the gospel. As we begin this morning, it, it behooves us to think for just a moment about background and context of this particular lesson. It's been called the gospel in miniature. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible declares the great love of God for sinners. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus declares that his mission was to seek and to save the lost, to save sinners. And in Luke chapter 15, we are going to see these things, both the great love of God from John 3 and Jesus' mission from Luke 19. We're going to see all of those things in pictures in Luke chapter 15. It's called one of the greatest short stories of all time in all of literature. In fact, you know, you read things on Google, and that's supposed to be true, right, if you just read it on the Internet. But according to the Internet, it is said that Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens called it the greatest short story ever written. But, of course, it's much more than that. You know, we all love Aesop. I think about our, our kids as we'd have story time at bedtime. We, we had a book of fables that we would read. But it, it's, we, we all love Aesop. We think about the tortoise and the hare and the ant and the grasshopper, and we teach our children these fables, these stories that have a lesson, that teach us about being prepared or, or not quitting or not being too prideful. But what can compare with a lesson from the master teacher? To sit at his feet and be captivated. Now, as you look at Luke chapter 15, you see the context, beginning in verse number 1, that there are tax collectors and sinners who are coming to Jesus. We might say, how terrific. I mean, how wonderful. Lost people are coming to the Savior. Is that not what we want? What's the problem then? Well, maybe we're going to begin to see the foundation for what is going to come, the parables that are going to come from the Christ. 
The verb that is used here in verse number one pictures these classes of people, these tax collectors and sinners, as almost coming to Jesus in a steady stream. I say it sometimes, I don't think it's a great analogy, but, but the closest thing we have is like the paparazzi, of course, and our, our, our actors and, and Hollywood people and even athletes sometimes. Famous people, they open up the restaurant door, they step out, and there's just a line of people who are waiting to take their picture or to get their autograph or to hound them. And we can imagine that while Jesus traveled around, if he had decided he was going to stand in one place, and not move for all the years of his ministry, there would have been a line that would have stretched for miles upon miles. Lost people are coming to the Savior. They were drawn to his uplifting message. So that's wonderful. That's terrific. But secondly, we see a a group of people in verse number 2. The Pharisees and the scribes who are complaining. This supposed teacher from God is welcoming and accepting sinners. But make the connection to Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 23, we see that God wants a full house. Luke 14, 23, then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Even 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward or toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants to have a house full of people, and Jesus has this steady stream of people coming to him, yet the Pharisees and the scribes are complaining. So he, Jesus, the master teacher, tells them this parable, this great story. And before we get into it, it is interesting to consider the lost items that are found here in Luke chapter 15 and the reason for their condition. We don't have time. Many people would tell you that you cannot separate these three, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And they do go together. But, of course, for our time this morning, we're going to have to emphasize just one, the longest one here. But think about their lostness, their case of being lost, and the reason. You see, some point out that the lost sheep, The sheep that was lost, and he was lost of the carelessness of oneself. It was his own fault that he was lost, as in wandering off. Do you know anyone who is in that condition of being lost because of their self? The coin that was lost. The coin was lost because of others. The carelessness of someone else. We know that we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ individually, but yet things happen sometimes. The lost coin was lost because of the carelessness of others. But the lost son, the son was lost, and of rebellion and disobedience. Deliberate and outright rebellion and disobedience. Three items, all lost for different reasons, but yet they are all lost. Now, as we said, there's one main point we'll get to, but I think there are some other things that we can learn this morning, and we will get into those. Beginning with number one, we have great value. One of the things that we can learn from this particular parable, and we're not going to take time to read it all, obviously, we're just going to jump right into it. I would, be, uh, I would think that most of us are familiar with it, but we notice from the beginning of this that we have great value. We have great value. Think about the progression of items. Think about this for just a minute. There is pro- a progression of value among these items. A lost sheep and a lost coin. Some have pointed out not just the value in one sense, but also the percentage 
of increase, if you think about it. In the first parable, there is one lost sheep out of a hundred. In the second parable, there is one lost coin out of ten. And in the last parable, there is one lost son out of two. But it's almost like there is a pause before we get to the lost son. You know, there are two exact questions that, that Jesus asks that are directed at the Pharisees and the scribes. Notice in verse number four, if you there, Luke 15, verse four, Jesus says, what man of you? A direct question. Notice verse number eight, or what woman? Direct question directed at them. And I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it. It's just kind of Joel's two cents here. But I feel like it comes to verse number 11 and it's almost like he takes a, a deep breath, a pause. And the Bible says, then he said. You see, a lost sheep is bad. I, I know we're not shepherds, but, but lost uh, possessions are bad. A lost day's wages is bad. None of us really want to work for free for a day, but a lost day's wages is bad. But some of you have experienced a child leaving. A child leaving and returning. And you can't put a price on your children. Jesus, of course, lays it out in the plainest fashion in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Think about that for just a minute. Uh, you know, this, I did this lesson a few weeks ago at a vacation Bible school, and so maybe these numbers are a little out of date, believe it or not, the way the, the markets change. But, but think about it for just a minute. Jeff Bezos, you ever, ever heard of him? Just launched himself into space. According to Forbes, and I think Forbes does it by the day, by, by the time the market closes at 5 o'clock, they'll recalculate everybody's total worth. Jeff Bezos, 192.4, my kids make fun of me, but buh, billion, 192.4 billion dollars that he was worth. And he wasn't even the most, the wealthiest person, worth the most at that time that I looked it up, the Bernard Arnault family, who I think has to do with, with Louis Vuitton or, or different kinds of brands, $192.9 billion. Is your soul worth that much? If you gain the whole world, the richest person in the world, but lose your own soul. And when we think about it, how it is, in verse number 26 there of Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 26 that we pointed out just a moment ago, for what Profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We are worth it all to God. And we recognize, even from this parable, that we have great value. Number two, we recognize that leaving God puts one into a far country. You know, the prodigal son must have been surprised. We try to put ourselves in his shoes. We try to realize maybe what he was going through. But, but the prodigal son must have been surprised how easy it was to leave his home and his father. He wanted out. By, by all accounts, we don't get exact details, but by all accounts, he wanted out. And from what we read, he didn't get much of a fight. Now, maybe he did. Maybe there's more there that, that the text didn't have time to include. The Holy Spirit didn't include for us. But it seems like maybe he didn't get much of a fight. And so maybe he was surprised that the father granted him the, por the portion that was his. And maybe he was surprised later how easy it was just to walk away. Maybe he was surprised how easy it was to drift away from his father. Let me ask you this. How long do you think it took 
before he thought of his father. And it seems to be from the text again that, that verse 13, not many days after, maybe he makes this declaration, he goes to his father, and maybe it's three days. Uh, maybe it's a week, we don't know, it's not very long, but he had some time. Do you think the supper table was a little uncomfortable during those few days, quite possibly? But yet he leaves. And when he goes, like most of us, with his chest puffed out, excited about getting to do what he wants to do, how long do you think it took him before he thought of his father? How long does it take for a teenager or a college student to turn away? How long does it take for a person's love for God to grow cold? How long does it take for a person to decide to stop attending Bible classes and worship services of the church? Maybe the prodigal son was surprised how much danger was lurking. You know, the prodigal son, and, and it's just a parable, but, but as Jesus is saying this, they didn't yet have the words of John in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. John hadn't yet penned them, but the premise is the same. 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, nor the things that are in this world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He probably thought he could handle it. He thought he could direct his own steps. Again, a departure from God's word in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23. Now, I'm a parent of a teenager, and I don't need you to tell me, and I don't probably have to tell you the dangers that are lurking out there. It's everywhere they turn, and they haven't even left the house yet, much less try to strike out on their own. There is danger lurking around every corner. And the prodigal son might have been surprised as he got into that riotous living, that prodigal living, that maybe, just maybe, there was danger everywhere he looked. And maybe, just maybe, he was surprised how fast he lost it all. You know, that far country was far from his father, far from protection, far from guidance, far from those who loved him. Maybe this is one of those questions we need to know and, and we, can, we can add it to the list of things we say we want to ask one day. But again, imagine in your mind, how long did it take? Do you think it took him three days? Do you think it took him a week, a month to get through all of his inheritance and to then be sitting with the pigs? I have, a, I have an imagination that considers that he might have been surprised how fast he lost it all. You know, I'm not always a fan of, of what can seem to be trite or kind of cliched sayings, but usually there is some truth behind those. And the one, I think I saw it on a, a church sign recently, a church's sign, but the one about if, that if you are away from God, see who moved, you know, because God didn't move. It's our journeys to a far country, away from him, that very often cause us trouble. Number three, sin never gives what it promises. I have a lesson entitled that, and I can't remember for the life of me if I preach it here or not, but we'll touch on it for just a moment. Can you imagine? He's got it made. He struts his stuff away from home to where all the fun is, and he thinks that he's going to live it up. He didn't consult Adam and Eve, who knew that when they partook of sin, it didn't give what it promised. He didn't consult Achan in Joshua chapter 7 that, that hid the things under his tent and then was found out and brought problems among the children of Israel. He didn't consult David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 who thought one pleasurable moment with a woman was worth it when his life then falls apart to some degree. And even those who come after the prodigal son bear this out. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 who lied to the Holy Spirit 
You know, the Bible is very clear. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Even as we talked about in our class this morning, as Jerry was teaching here in the auditorium from 2 Peter 2, the wages of unrighteousness. The wages of sin is death. Maybe the best description, and we've talked about it before, is Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25, the passing pleasure of sin. We think about Moses being willing to enjoy suffering, being willing to partake in suffering rather than enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. Look, there's no doubt that sin can be fun, at least for the short term. I love to golf, personally. Sunday morning's as good as any time. Go out and hit the golf course. There's lots of other times that we could do any number of things that are fun, and in and of themselves may not be sinful. There are a lot of things that we could list that seem fun here and now. This young man thought he had it all figured out. He thought he could live life to the fullest. And how often do we think that this world can give us the fulfillment that we can only find in a life that is lived faithful to God? Sin never gives what it promises. We notice as well that hardships may bear a direct relation to sinfulness. You know, we don't like to admit this. And I think we struggle with the honesty. You all have heard me say this a lot recently, but it's just been on my my mind. But we struggle with honesty with ourselves sometimes. We honestly struggle with with the honesty that's necessary to assess the situation. But it's true. How many people honestly shake their fist at God and question Him and wonder why? Why am I suffering? Why is this happening? But the answer is staring right back at them in the mirror. We face trials and struggles. Faithful Christians get cancer. Faithful Christians pass from this life. Faithful Christians lose children too young and face tragic situations. But how often when we are struggling is the problem that we have removed ourselves from a right relationship with God. We are sitting with the pigs when we could be sitting in the Father's house. But it's only of our own accord, our own decisions that we have decided to separate from God. The firm but true words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The prodigal son found himself in trouble. And what he could have done is said, why me, God? Why are these things happening to me? And we can step back from the Bible and look at it and say, well, it's your own fault. Sometimes we struggle with that in our own lives, but we need to do our best to be honest and look around us sometimes and recognize that the hardships we face are because of our own sinfulness. Number next, suffering can cause one to be repentant. We think about the prodigal son coming to himself, as the text says. You know, the providence of God is a deep contemplation. You better be prepared to strap on your thinking cap and wrestle with some deep thoughts if you're going to contemplate the providence of God. But yes, sometimes the suffering we go through can lead someone to repent of their sins. It's painful. It's not the way we typically want things to go, but it has worked and will continue to work for some folks. Here's a tough thought for you to consider. Just take a moment and think about it, and you can take it home with you and see what you think. But isn't this the point of church discipline sometimes? We've talked about this a few times in class lately as well. But in a sense, our withdrawal of fellowship or withdrawing from those who walk disorderly 
2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, remember there that Paul writes, We command you, brethren, that you withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly. But isn't it interesting that Paul's instructions are to cause suffering so that a person can see their lost condition, but not just see it, see it and take action and be restored before it is everlasting too late. Suffering can sometimes produce a penitent heart that leads homeward. And we do that sometimes when we withdraw our fellowship from someone to try to help them see the error of their ways. And yet other times it's something totally unrelated. In this case, the son just realizes he's lost everything, that he's sitting with the pigs. But through that suffering, he decides to change his mind, to change his actions. And so then we learn from this story as well what true repentance is. True repentance is total change. Not just calling and asking for help. I mean, I know he didn't have a cell phone, but you can, ima- can you imagine calling up his dad? Hey, yeah, dad, I've messed up, but can you forward me a little more money? You know, I just don't have enough anymore. Could you help me out just a little bit longer? That's not going to cut it. True repentance is total change, a swallowing of pride. Think about this in verses 18 and 19. Think of the rehearsal that he goes to. That he goes through, excuse me, I think it's, it's funny to realize it seems like he, he's repeating it to himself, right? I wonder if he did the same thing when he walked away from his father. You know, okay, father, I want what's mine. Father, I want what's mine. You know, and he goes to him and he asks for that and then he, he gets it. Do you think he did the same rehearsal in the far country? Father, I've sinned. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He works himself up. He repeats it. It's his mantra. He's going to say it over and over again. Make me like one of your hired servants. But true repentance is more than just rehearsing those words. It's action. Not just even not just thinking or even saying it. He could have traveled all the way home and said, Father, I'm sorry. And then walked right back to what he was doing. We learn what true repentance is. It's a change. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Paul would tell those in Corinth, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer, there's that word again, suffer loss from us in nothing. We learn that true repentance is the changing of the mind. It is the rehearsal of I'm sorry, but it's also taking action and making the journey home. But not only that, we learn what true forgiveness is. From this story, we learn what true forgiveness is. And you know what? This is the part of the story that everyone likes to focus on. This is the part that that sinners enjoy the most, and rightfully so, because we see what true forgiveness is, and that is that it is total restoration. It's total restoration. Notice the father doesn't qualify. He doesn't ask him a list of questions and say, all right, son, can, can you answer these three questions correctly? All right, son, have you done this and this? You have to do that and that. And he doesn't qualify him. He doesn't ask for receipts. He doesn't ask for detailed descriptions. He doesn't break out the balance sheet and say, okay, here's all the good things you did. Here's all the bad things you've done, and now you're coming back. He doesn't try to calculate how much he should forgive. But what about us? We know the descriptions from the Bible. Psalm 103 and verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions. Micah chapter 7 and verse 19. The picture of God treading our sins under his feet and then casting the remains into the sea. And even Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 3. 
Remember that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. All? You mean for me? You remember last week when we talked about the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, how, how we might earn or we might get as much the same reward as Paul? Even me, I can have all spiritual blessings, not some. God didn't say, well, you only get half. Or, or you're only going to get what you deserve. All spiritual blessings are in Christ. But when we think about true forgiveness, we must also recognize that it's, it's something we must always be ready to do. Think about Luke chapter 17 in verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. You know, we, we talked about this on a Wednesday night, I think, recently, and you could always go back and view that lesson, but we cannot forgive someone for a sin they haven't committed. Nor can we declare someone forgiven of a sin for which they refuse to repent. But that doesn't mean we don't stand ready. Some people would say that from the words of this particular parable, that it seems like the father is waiting at the window every day watching that the reason he sees him afar off and he runs and he meets him is because he is always watching and always ready. May we take that same attitude. And we must remember the standard of forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How, Paul? How are we supposed to forgive one another? Remember back in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is asked the question, how many times do I have to forgive? Paul kind of takes that out of the way. How am I supposed to give even as God in Christ forgave you? Okay, well, that's a little bit tougher standard, God, Paul. But now we know what the standard is to live up to for forgiveness. If God is willing to forgive you and me through his son, then we must be ready and willing to forgive others as well, and even as the father from this particular parable. We notice as well from the conclusion of this parable that we must celebrate. You know, many point out, as we said just a moment ago, that in verse 20, the father sees him afar off because he is wait, watching and waiting. And that's certainly possible. The first two parts of this parable, and the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, if you link them together, the first two parts, or the first two parables, describe for us perfectly the rejoicing between friends and neighbors, Recalled in verse number 7 and in verse number 10. The lost is found. The dead is alive. They don't deserve our disgust but our delight. They don't deserve our shock but our singing. They don't deserve our condemnation but our celebration when they return. Now I hope this is the one that we get right. You know I think we often do. We like to point out in Acts chapter 8 the Ethiopian nobleman that in verse 39 he went on his way rejoicing. I think we do. We've had baptisms here lately, as we've mentioned already this morning, and folks gather together and we sing and we hug, and we're excited about that. We celebrate when someone is saved, when they become a Christian. A person was lost, was at risk of being eternally separated from God, eternally condemned to suffering in hell, and now they are found. They have hope. That deserves our celebration, even as they begin to celebrate here in this parable but but as we begin to sort of draw this to a close and think about the last couple of points we would do well to notice first of all that there are two ditches to be avoided question how many lost things are there in this chapter 
Most people would say three. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But I think if we're really looking, it seems that there are four. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, and the other lost son. We need to avoid, as we think about the ditches, the sinfulness of selfishness. There is no doubt in the wrongness of the younger son. To ask for his inheritance in the beginning in verse 12 is like telling his father that he wishes he was dead. I have no interest in a relationship with you. I have no use for you but just your money. As James would write in James 3.16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Or as Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Not being selfish, true love, biblical love, is not self-seeking. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 and 5. You know, so many times we look out for old number one, just for ourselves. We are selfish and there is no doubt from this parable that we open it up and we read it and we recognize that the younger son messed up and was wrong. But if we're talking about two ditches, we must recognize that we must also avoid the sinfulness of self-righteousness. And this is the one often missed. In fact, when you look it up on the internet, again, right, Wikipedia is the only thing better than, than Google, but Wikipedia said, and it just caught my eye, I, I'm being facetious there, of course, but, but it caught my eye, it, it said that this final parable is about redemption. That's interesting, maybe, just a little. That's the part that we like, that the younger son comes back and he is redeemed. He, he is welcomed in by the father, but question, who was Jesus addressing? Go back to verse number 2, and it is the Pharisees and the scribes who make the statement, and notice verse 3, he spoke this parable to them. Certainly all those who are gathered there who could hear, but also to the Pharisees and the scribes. The picture of the older brother is not pretty. In verse number 30, he says, and talking to the father, as the father finds him, this son of yours. He wouldn't even call him his brother. He says, that fellow over there, this son of yours. He even self-righteously claims in verse 29, I never transgressed your commandments. Not even once? And this whole time, not even once, you haven't transgressed the commandments of the father? Can any of us claim that we haven't sinned? 1 John 1 and verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We must avoid both sides of this road, both ditches. And real quick, what, what a lesson for us today, uh, going back to the idea of our, our world, the internet, social media, we spend our time on, in one ditch very often yelling at people in the other ditch and, and we just yell at one another. From our ditch, our world, our social media is full of people in one side yelling to people in the other side, which segues perfectly into our last point, and that is that we must seek the repentance of sinners. How does this parable end? How does this parable end? Well, unlike the first two, it doesn't end with celebration. The lost sheep, the lost coin, there is rejoicing and celebration. 
But these self-righteous scribes and Pharisees were so caught up in Jesus' interaction with the tax collectors and sinners when they themselves should have been seeking the repentance of those sinners. And this, of course, is the main point. Some would say the father and the younger son are not the point, that this is the point of the parable. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, Peter came to himself and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Peter sets the bar really high, right? Peter, again, kind of maybe a little self-righteous, kind of thinking, well, up to seven times, would that be enough? But Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And one final time in this lesson, as we look inward, are we seeking those who need to repent? The older son represented the Pharisees and the scribes who would rather see punishment for sinners than for forgiveness. And when we look all around us at the sinful ways of this old world, it is easy to lose compassion and be full of anger. Sure, we don't need to coddle or welcome in sin, but if the God of heaven is willing to delay his judgment so that man has time to return to him, maybe we should be seeking sinners and the repentance of sinners as well. And one of those other interesting things that we see here at the end, how does the parable end all the way? If you look at verse 32, how does the parable end? How does the older brother respond? Of course, the answer is, we don't know. Kind of like that rich young ruler that we talked about last week. Kind of like others who walked up to Jesus and heard the saving words of eternal life. And then we don't know if they continue to follow him or if they turned away and maybe come back later. When it comes to the older brother, we don't actually see what he did. Did he go into the party and celebrate with the younger son? Did he go back out to the field and stand there stomping, angry and mad and jealous? But here's the point, as we conclude our lesson this morning, there was the invitation. There was absolutely the invitation. And so, as we conclude our lesson this morning, there is, too, for us, an invitation to be accepting of sinners and to seek them. But as we're gathered here this morning at the end of this particular lesson, we ask for you to consider your life and recognize if maybe you are in a lost condition. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, we'll be singing the song that's been selected that through its words we might encourage you to become a child of God, to obey God's simple plan of salvation, to repent of your sins, confess Jesus as Lord, and to be baptized for the remission of your sins so that the Lord can add you to his church. We are thankful for that opportunity this morning. We're thankful as well, even as we began a discussion in our auditorium class on Wednesday night last week with those who are New Testament Christians, children of God who have wandered away and need to come back. Maybe you're in that position this morning. Maybe there's sin in your life that is separated from you from God, as we talked about even already a few moments ago. Maybe you need to come back to him. We're thankful for the opportunity to encourage you as well. Maybe you need the prayers of this church through the struggles of this life to encourage you. We're thankful for this opportunity. One of our elders will be coming forward to the front to assist you so that we can pray with you and for you. And if you need to make a change, would you do so now as we stand together and as we sing?